Please take your Bibles and turn in God's holy and perfect and powerful word to the book of Colossians, to the third chapter, and we will be today in verse 12. Again, just thanking the Lord for the grace from Him to have this book, His Word, to be able to read it, to be able to study it, and to study it together. If you're visiting this morning, we're about eight months into studying through Colossians with a few breaks, uh, maybe six and a half. Um, but we welcome you. Uh, you're at a disadvantage. You've missed out on a whole bunch of foundational truths that weigh into what is now being commanded. But trust that it will still, uh, that God will work his word and this portion of his word in. And for us who are regulars, that God will massage these ever deeper into us, transforming us individually and as a whole body. We are transitioning from or even within the command section. And the command section is basically 3-1. You can see it opens with, therefore, if you've been raised, set commands. Uh, very few of them before this. And then really starting in verse 5, we really began to unpack that. And now we're transitioning over the last couple of studies here. And I appreciate Robbie last week filling in and bringing a challenge to our hearts on evangelism that I pray will continue to work, perhaps even this past week and in this coming week. But we're transitioning from verses 5 to 8 in chapter 3, which call us to stop sinning, to put it to death, to put it away from us, to turn in every way from every single element of the world, of the devil, of ourselves, that dishonors God, dishonors Christ, dishonors the gospel and his name. And that's all summarized in verse 9, the second part, by putting off and then transitioning into, uh, well, putting off the old self. And verse 5 spelled out about half a dozen sins that are typical. Uh, verse 8 spelled out another half dozen or so. And all of those being put away and put off so that in the same process we are putting on and that's where it really begins in verse 10 with God's uh, call for us to begin now to recognize there's a whole new self that he has given us. There's lots of our flesh that remains, but a whole new self that as we get to know God better, the verse, verse 10 goes on to say, renews us, renews us, renews us, renews us, so that evermore, degree by degree, we are being made to look more like our Savior. So in verses 12 through 17, we're going to take that as just a chunk, and you can see the outline there that uh, I borrowed from John MacArthur in his teaching through this, that we could just say this is a portion on Christian fellowship or on the church. So it's moved from sins that certainly can affect the body but are, are often more deeply embedded in us personally, and now to things that will make a tremendous difference in our gathering together and our being a body. In verses 12 through 17, depending on how you count them, like I would count that there's, in a way, five commands in verse 12, but there's at least 10, maybe a dozen commands uh, that all believers in every single church in all of time are to adhere to, regardless of, as verse 11 says, our ethnicity, our age, 
our maturity, our marital status, our family status, our geographic location, our income, our position in society, all of those things are now irrelevant in the church. All of us are uh, in Christ, and he is our all. God here is going to call us to say, I want to craft a culture among my people that is distinctly and uniquely different from the world and from all other groups, dramatically different, that reflects the Godhead's unity. His point is, much of what he wants to do in sanctifying us, he does through our relationships with each other. How we interact with each other significantly impacts our sanctification and who and what we each become. So, you'll see in verse 12, put on, and five elements that are listed there. In verse 13, they're not, they're, they're expressed passively as participles, but they're actions that we are to be doing, bearing and forgiving. Verse 14, another thing we put on that summarizes all of it so far, and that is love. Verse 15 has two, let Jesus Christ's peace rule your life and be thankful. Verse 16 has three, let Jesus Christ's words dwell in you, teaching, admonishing each other, and singing with thankfulness. And then verse 17, summarizing it largely, do everything in Jesus Christ's name, and again, calling us to a heart of thankfulness. So, we're beginning this section that will probably take us more than a month to work our way through because it's so rich. But starting here with verse 12, which I've just titled, Christ is all and in all, so that's the end of verse 11, that really produces remarkable inner transformation and remarkable transformation in any group of believers. Now I see nine components in here broken down this way. Three blessings that come to all believers that in the equality of verse 11 profoundly impact us. They produce particularly that one action of putting on, and that results in much spiritual fruit, five of which here are identified, but there are dozens and dozens and dozens of spiritual fruit that comes out of what verse 12 is ultimately calling us to. This isn't meant to be an exhaustive list, neither the blessings that are in purple, nor the commanded things that we're to put on that are in blue. Both of them are simply snapshots, small representations of far greater sets of things that God is doing and wants to do in us. So let's ask the Lord now as we look at this powerful, rich verse to work supernaturally in us. Lord, again, what you charge us here to do, which we understand is to be done individually, but also to be done within First Street Bible Church as a body of believers. We recognize that it is important to you, that it reflects greatly on your name and on your glory. And so, Lord, it is daunting to us. And we come asking for you to, number one, work these truths into our minds in deeper ways than we've understood them before so that they're powerfully working inside, living, active, searching, uh, transforming, piercing down to the very deepest sorrow of our souls. And through this, would you do a powerful purging work in 
this minister, this body of believers, each and every son and daughter of yours here, so that we're all made more like our beautiful, glorious, good Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray in his name and for his glory. Amen. So let's take the three blessings first of all. So in the ESV, we start with the command, put on then. In the New American Standard, you'll see the phrase, as God's beloved, chosen, holy, first. Um, and those are the foundations. So we'll get to the command. We will not minimize it. But let's start with just truths that, by God's design, are meant to stagger us, are meant to remind us, each of them having huge implications and significance in our lives of all that God has done for us. Not all, but some of what God has done for us that should humble us and compel us to whatever he tells us to do because he has chosen us, made us holy, and made us beloved children of his. All three of these words are words throughout the Old Testament describing God's care for Israel. He chose Israel, he made Israel holy, and they were his beloved people. That now, especially in light of verse 11, is saying Gentiles or Greeks and Jews, all people everywhere, no matter what, all are receiving these things. They're true for every single believer without exception. Each of these three terms also at various places in the Bible are used to describe Christ as chosen, holy, and beloved. So let's walk through each of these three and then we'll walk through the five and I just want to preface it to say none of these are profoundly difficult concepts to understand on a surface level. Probably most of you right now could tell us what each of these words means. But would you in this process ask God to give you a greater understanding of them and of the implications of them for your own life? So first of all, he starts with, you're chosen by God. Recognize that. That should have a profound influence on the way that you live your life after he saves you. In John 15, so this is the Last Supper. This is after he's washed the disciples' feet and in the process of teaching them. He says to them, you did not choose me. I chose you. And in the same way that we could see Jesus in the Gospels bodily going to each of the disciples and calling them to come after him in faith and follow him, so we get a picture of how every single one of us, none of us participated in choosing God and then him responding. Ultimately, we find out from Scripture, God from the very big foundations of the earth, has chosen us, waited for us, and when we have come to that moment that he has chosen, he has chosen us and saved us. And he adds in John 15, appointed you. In other words, I've done this for a purpose. And the purpose is that you'll bear much fruit. I haven't just chosen you so you sit in your self-righteous, holy little tower feeling good about you. You're chosen because you have an appointment. Go, bear much fruit, and he's going to tell us some of that fruit here in verse 11. God handpicked you, using your life on this earth to display his glory and grace. And let's pause here and note, he did not choose you or me 
because we're better than anyone else. He did not choose us because we're a great addition to his family. He'd been looking for someone like us for a long time. What you were without Christ didn't endear you one bit to God. Quite the opposite. God chooses the nobodies and the nothings, the misfits and the mongrels of this world. Because that choice displays his grace, his mercy, his love, and his kindness that he would choose people that nobody else would choose to be in their family or on their team. God chooses and says, I want you and I want to do a work of my glory in your life. Sam Storms notes, not everyone likes the doctrine of election, but God loves it. It is the heart of him. None of us in any way would have ever come to him otherwise. Notice also the plurality of the word once. So he isn't just singling out a particular believers but, or a particular, just us individually, but all of us corporately to say, and if you look at the end of verse uh, 15, you'll see that he's called us, he's chosen and worked to bring us into one body. So part of the emphasis of that is none of us is off the hook. Nobody's just to say, well, I think he's chosen some better believers and I'm not one of those, so I'm just going to barely get by. All I do is want to stay out of hell. All of us are commanded and called to the things of verse 12 and all the other verses as well because we have been chosen without exception. Secondly, he notes that we're holy. Again, not a hard term. We've studied it and talked about it many times, but just a reminder, he set us apart. He set us apart from sin that used to make up our whole life, and he set us apart to God, for God, and for his purposes. And incredibly now, we are given a perfect standing. The righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. God sees us stunningly as holy as his own perfect son. It's the only way that any of us can approach God is that we're given that holy position and standing before him. We were told this back in Colossians 1.22 months ago. Here's why Christ died, in order to present you. Not because you've made yourself holy and blameless, but because of his work to present you ultimately before the Father as holy, blameless, and above reproach. No one can be right with God or close to God in relationship apart from Christ making us holy by imputing his own righteousness to us. Incredible gift beyond comprehension. And then third, and each of these could have so much more under them, beloved. It's a term of affection and endearment. It's the way God referred to Jesus, his son, while on earth in a number of times at his baptism at the Mount of Transfiguration. This is my beloved. The Apostle John was so stunned by the love of Christ for him and for people that when he wrote the letter first that we know of as 1 John, in the middle of it, in chapter 3, verse 1, he just stunned, said, See, behold, look at. Can you believe it? What kind of love, what depth, what awesomeness of the love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God and then, as if that's not enough, he adds in this layer to really press it home. We are, we are that loved as children of God. 
that God doesn't love us any less than they love each other. For God's love is perfect and complete. How can it be? Brothers and sisters, we are beloved, beloved of God. So in Ephesians, which is very similar in many themes to Colossians, the letter opens there. So we're well into Colossians, two-thirds, three-fourths of the way through it. But at the beginning of the letter to the Ephesians, Paul also tied all of these thoughts, all three of these same thoughts, and expanded on their, their um, meaning, their implication, their importance, and said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And now he's going to specify. Here's first blessing he's going to note that's spectacular. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be. Here's second element, holy and blameless before him. Here's third element in Colossians 3.12. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons, implication of familial love again through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in. And now he calls the Lord Jesus Christ the beloved. And I would remind you that was also in Colossians 1, 13, 12, 14. Sorry, forgot to look that one up. But back there earlier, we are, we are brought into, we are transferred into the kingdom of the beloved. It's a kingdom filled with those that God loves so profoundly and deeply. Everyone equally. Here's how I might summarize this first part of verse 12. In essence, Christ Jesus says to the Father, here are the ones you sent me to redeem for your glory. I chose each one of them and I put them into myself. I gave all of them equally my holiness and righteousness so they could commune with you. And now, I've set my deep love upon each of them equally. They are my beloveds, and I am theirs. Now, now, we can make their whole natures to be more like ours. And that's the emphasis for the command. One overarching command in verse 12, which is repeated uh, at the beginning of verse 15 as well, or 14, and the note here that, again, despite all the grace of these blessings, God still wants to do more work. He's not done yet in beautifying us and make us not only positionally in his son, but also to reflect him practically in our everyday lives. We still have so far to be developed and matured and molded and transformed and changed by Christ. So the grace-driven effort he calls us to is then put on. Therefore, as a result of these three astounding positions that you've been given, they warrant a holy attire. In essence, he says, dress the part. Dress yourself in every way, every day, so to as identify who you are in Christ and who he has made you. 
add layer upon layer upon layer upon layer that over time makes you look more and more and more like him. We've noted before, Romans 13, 4, should have had this verse up there, just summarizes that to say, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't walk around in the spiritual rags of the old self, unbefitting to such a royal, pure king. Walk through life dressed to the nines, we might say, in excellence, in preeminence, in the finest clothing that can be worn by anyone. His virtues manifesting themselves ever more brilliantly, stronger, and brighter. In the same way that we're called, maybe in a more familiar way, to put on the armor of God, which is really just saying, put on Christ, put on his salvation, put on his righteousness, put on his gospel, put on his truth, put on his sword, the word, the spirit, put those all on. And you are protected from anything that the devil may try to do to you to destroy you. And so now we also are called to put on the powerful clothing of Christ's nature. Scott Hubbard, if you are in Christ, God has placed in your heart a hunger for holiness. You are not content merely to be counted righteous in Christ, glorious as that is. You yearn also to become righteous like Christ, to be as holy as he is holy. So growing in the likeness of your Savior becomes paramount in your life. And now we come to these five, although I really would just want to emphasize those are just this tiny aspect of the whole tree of Christ's nature that is to increasingly adorn our own nature. These clothes of Christ are what enables a body of believers to see no dividing distinctions among us. As the title of the sermon emphasized, the truths in verse 11 that Christ is all and Christ is in all, and the three truths at the beginning of verse 12 that you're chosen, you're holy, and you're deeply loved are what will now produce in all Christ's followers this adorning. And I just want to emphasize the all of verse 11 again here. We all are to wear Christ's compassion. Not just the nice people. We all are to wear Christ's kindness. Not just those who naturally are more that way by personality. We all are to wear Christ's humility. Not just the ones that have been beaten down by their lives. We all are to wear Christ's meekness. Not just those who are more passive personalities. And we all are to wear Christ's patience. Not just the people who are more laid back. We don't group up and say, well, everybody that's got a strength of compassion, come on over here. We got some ministry for you. Everybody that's better in humility, come over. Well, they wouldn't come, would they? You'd have to pull the humble up. We don't segment out and each specialize in some of these things. Well, these are my strengths. I'm not naturally very patient, so I need you to be the patient person. Like all of us are called to all of these in fullness in Christ. So let's again walk through these, not profoundly difficult to understand, 
But as we hover over and probe in each one a little bit, may the Holy Spirit work His work in you that will bear more of these five particular fruits God identifies. God desires and commands and works in our hearts and natures so we become increasingly adorned with compassionate hearts. The compassion of Jesus emphasized so often in the four Gospels when he was here as one of us. Your inside, so the word actually has to do with our guts, our very deepest inner, become filled with feelings that is emotion of care and concern for other people, not just ourselves. Where we've been insensitive, mean, harsh, self-centered people without Jesus, now seeing him and his compassion to us and to others, we grow increasingly sensitive. Rather than being people critical of other people and seeing their faults and their sins and their weaknesses and all the ways they're not like us, with the same grace and mercy that God has shown us, we moved with feeling for them, particularly those whose lives are hard. Henry Nouwen says, compassion asks us to go where it hurts, to enter into the places of pain, to share in the brokenness, fear, confusion, and anguish. Compassion challenges us to cry out with those in misery, to mourn with those who are lonely, to weep with those in tears. Compassion requires us to be weak with the weak, vulnerable with the vulnerable, and powerless with the powerless. Compassion means full immersion in the condition of being human. Jesus, as he became human, was so compassionate toward people and once us. Remember verse 10 at the very end. He's shown us his compassion and given us a new self so that we will image his compassion. John MacArthur, remember that even Jesus' most scathing denunciation and blistering diatribe against the religious leaders of Jerusalem in Matthew 23 ends with Christ weeping over Jerusalem. Compassion colored everything he did. Christ's followers are not to be indifferent to each other and to each other's hardships, but to feel each other's pains and burdens and to be willing to walk with each other compassionately through them. The more self-focused we are, the less compassionate we will be. But the more Christ-focused and absorbed we are, the more compassion will flow from us. Secondly, God desires and thus commands and thus works in us in our very deepest hearts and natures so that we become increasingly adorned with Jesus' kind nature. Similar to compassion, we might say that compassion feels and kindness acts is generated out of compassion. It's to be increasingly filled with grace. Your rough edges that make you irritable to other people dissipate in Christ's love and grow more and more considerate of people and thoughtful of others. Kindness has the idea of self-sacrifice, of generosity, of grace-giving or the giving of oneself, sometimes in small ways, sometimes in massive ways, for the good and benefit of others. Tim Keller on this one. We instinctively tend to limit for whom we exert ourselves or show kindness. We do it for people like us and for people whom we like. Jesus will have none of that. 
By depicting a Samaritan helping a Jew, Jesus could not have found a more forceful way to say that anyone at all in need, regardless of race, politics, class, or religion, is your neighbor. Not everyone in your, is your neighbor or brother or sister in faith, but everyone is your neighbor, and you must love. And remember, 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind. Such a mark of love that verse 14 will call us to. Third in this list is humility. God desires and commands and works then in our hearts and natures to, so we become increasingly adorned with humility. Such a beautiful trait to Christ because he displayed it so beautifully in the way that he lived. This is a spirit that is lowly, that doesn't want to rise up above others. Primarily because we still recognize how sinful we are. God be merciful to me, a sinner. And how little ultimately we are in light of Christ's magnificence. When we see his greatness, it humbles us down to even more a sense of who are we and what are we in light of his glory. It's to see oneself rightly and accurately in relation to God and to other people. To increasingly understand the servant nature of Christ that he once created in us. John Wood, Jesus said we must die in order that we might live. Daily Christian living, in other words, is daily Christian dying. Dying to our trivial comforts, soul-shrinking conveniences, arrogant preferences, and self-centered entitlements, and living for something much larger than what makes us comfortable and safe. Spurgeon. It is not humility for a man to stand up and deprecate, depreciate himself and say he cannot do this or that or the other. It is not a humility to underrate yourself. Humility is to think of yourself, if you can, as God thinks of you. It is to feel that if we have talents, God has given them to us, and it should be seen that like freight in a vessel, they tend to make us sink low. The more we have, the lower we ought to lie. Beloved, humility is to feel ourselves lost, ruined, and undone, to be killed by the same hand which afterwards makes us alive, to be ground to pieces as to our own doings and willings, to know and trust in none but Jesus, to be brought to feel and sing, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Humility is to feel that we have no power of ourselves, but that it all comes from God. Just a few scriptures that will remind us so many that could be chosen here. But John the Baptist captured it well when he said he, looking at Christ, he must continually increase in, in my life, in the way he's perceived by what my right life reflects. May it bring greater praise and glory. May that always increase. And I, may I just continually shrink, get smaller. May there be less of me and more of him. Romans 12, 3, that we're warned not to think more highly of ourselves that we're all given to do, but to always, with everyone, think with sober, un unimpaired by any kind of pride. And then both in 1 Peter 5, so Peter, and in James 4, James, both use almost identical language here. Peter even uses the imagery that Paul has used, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Both Peter and James notes the proverb that God opposes the proud, will always work against our pride, and gives incredible grace to the humble. So the charge in both verses is, therefore, humble yourselves 
under the mighty hand of God. I would suggest that the other four traits in this verse flow out of humility. That the more humble we are in spirit, the more compassionate, kind, meek, and patient people we will be. And conversely, the more pride that remains in us, the less compassion, kindness, meekness, and patience we will show. Fourth, God desires and commands and works in our hearts and natures so we become increasingly adorned with meekness. It's not weakness. It's not timidity. It's not being spineless or docile. It's to have a spirit, powerful spirit, that's gentle, quiet, submissive, rather than assertive, aggressive, forceful in personality. Gentleness is an incredibly exalted trait in the New Testament after Christ came and modeled it. Very similar to meekness and gentleness, very synonymous. It's one of the first qualities that Christ highlighted when in the Sermon on the Mount, so early in the book of Matthew, to simply say, the meek that the rest of society and the world may trounce on are incredibly blessed. They are the ones inheriting the earth. Kent Hughes, behind gentleness is steel-like strength, for the supreme characteristic of the meek man or woman is that he or she is under perfect control. Gentleness and meekness is strength under control. Those wearing the true garment of gentleness and meekness are immensely powerful people, for they are controlled by God. Spurgeon, we are all of us remarkably good-tempered while we have our own way, but the true meekness, which is a work of grace, will stand the fire of persecution and will endure the test of enmity, cruelty, and wrong, even as the meekness of Christ did upon the cross of Calvary. Perhaps no line in Scripture captures Jesus' own gentleness and meekness and humility than when he invited the crowds to come to him, everyone who's labored and heavy laden and to find rest. And he describes himself there as gentle and lowly in heart, forgiving rest to all of our souls. And fifth and finally, God desires and commands and works in our hearts and natures so they become increasingly adorned with patience. The willingness to endure things when they are not right, whether that's by our own wishes or by unjust things. Without anger, retaliation, bitterness, without wrath that verse five talked about, or verse eight talked about, without quitting, without running from the situation, just patiently with an incredible inner strength of spirit that comes from God to wait and wait and wait and wait. Long-suffering is another word here that fits patience. Suffering without losing faith, without losing spirit, without losing heart. Two scriptures, only one of which uses the word patience, but Paul's testimony in 1 Timothy 1 that just says, Christ came into the world to save sinners. I'm the foremost sinner, but I received incredibly mercy for this reason, that Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. And 1 Peter 2 doesn't use the word patience, 
but what an illustration of the way that it looks as he talks about Christ calling us to follow in these steps. Committing no sin, having no deceit, not reviling when he was reviled, and not threatening when he suffered. All of this, this is what patience can do. It can entrust oneself to the one who judges justly and know that in due time God will deal with it all fairly. Now verse 13, if we peek ahead, Lord willing, next Sunday, we'll see two specific outworkings, particularly of patience, but really of all five of these. The bearing and the forgiving. And then verse 14, we'll wrap these all up. I thought Sam Storms gave us a really good thought <clears throat> that wraps all of verse 12, particularly the five elements all together. The garment of Christian godliness is seamless. It isn't a patchwork of virtues sewed together and therefore just as easily pulled apart. The life that truly reflects the beauty and goodness of Jesus is unified in its display of the many interrelated qualities that he embodied. Many more than these five. To forego one is to undermine the integrity of the others. To be compassionate, one must be kind. To be kind, one must be humble. To be humble, one must be meek. To be meek, one must display patience. Such Jesus was, such we ought to be. Perhaps these are not so much five distinct and different qualities, but all coming from the same family. We might think of like a tux. Are there still tuxes? Okay. So this kind of works, at least if you're old enough. Like a tuxedo where numerous parts all coordinate and work together from head to toe to create one great look. The more fully clothed in these qualities of Jesus we each are, the more fully this body of believers will reflect Christ to this world. So how are you in these areas? What might the Lord want to change in you? Where are you not reflecting Christ? Though of you have received these from him if you're his. And how are we doing as a church? Would anyone identify First Street Bible Church as a church that's humble, kind, compassionate, meek, and patient? They're not the traits that churches usually aim for for a reputation. But these reflect our dear Savior. Two closing uh, brief challenges. First of all, just to ask each of you, have you and are you even now, can you say with confidence, truly experiencing these gospel glories from and in Christ Jesus? Eight-year-olds to 88-year-olds. It might be that you mentally comprehend these and that as a religious person, you try to modify your behavior to look like these things. But that's not ultimately what God is calling for. Just want to say if you've never, if you can't say here with confidence that your whole interior has been revolutionized by the compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience of Christ toward you, expressed most vividly on the cross, then please, Examine to see if you are in the faith and in Christ. 
And if not, to repent even now and perhaps for the first time in your life to truly, really believe. There's more in the bulletin on all that that entails. We would love to have further conversation with you. Don't be embarrassed by it. Don't rush off to other things. All of eternity rests on this understanding. Secondly, if you have experienced these and are experiencing these eight gospel glories from and in Christ, are you responding? Is he getting to do the work in you? Are you longing for it and seeking for it and asking for it the way that he, when he first began to allow you to experience them, wants you to reflect them? Beware of walking out of here today and hardly giving verse 12 another thought. God warns us about how we can be deceived by hearing the word, nodding, taking notes, letting it come in. We're here after all. But then nothing happens, nothing changes. We go out and we forget. He reminds us that the blessing, the favor of God rests on those who look intently into his law, who persevere in it through everything that opposes us and does not forget but goes out and does. And I want to recognize it's hard. I feel that weight as a preacher. I sat many more years where you are. And it's very easy to just check out each Sunday and go on and not give it another thought until you walk in the doors and the preacher reminds you the next week of what we studied the previous week. We'll get to Colossians 3.16, but it's a verse I just want to keep pressing on you um, almost every Sunday that we talk about it. May the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and his nature here come to dwell richly in us. May it be said of First Street Bible Church that we took these things to heart and God transformed us. Again, this is not behavior modification. Though there may be external actions that must change, ultimately the change happens inside. I'll tell you again, 2 Corinthians 3.18. When the Holy Spirit takes the veil away and we're allowed to see the glory of our Lord, and I hope you've seen more of the glory of the Lord Jesus in verse 12, the more we will be transformed into that same image as we behold it, as we worship Him in it, one degree of glory to another. So meditate on these glories. Meditate on the fact that God has chosen you. Meditate on his uh, making you holy. Meditate on his loving you. Each of those three meditations alone, just running through your mind. Meditate on his compassion to you and his kindness. Meditate on his incredible humility and meekness and patience toward you and toward all of us. I love the way Peter put it in the opening of his second letter. So you're going to see divine power, divine nature in green there. His divine power, Christ, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him, something Colossians has really hammered home as well. That's how we grow. That's how the power surges through. The better we know him, the more intimately we truly know him. By which, through that, he's granted to us incredibly precious and great promises so many gospel promises. So that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Those who are experiencing it, experiencing the blessings of that, and as a result being an incredible blessing to everyone else. 
Father, again, we thank you for your word here, that there is so much truth and power even in one verse. I pray, Lord, that we will be faithful, every one of them, beginning with me, most of all, remembering these truths, praying over them, beholding the glories of Christ in them, and as a result, putting on layer after layer after layer of these beautiful adornments of Christ. Not so people praise us. God, keep us from self-righteousness. So that people see you. And when we proclaim the gospel, they understand. God, please use this mightily for your glory's sake in each of our lives and in this church. Until Christ comes, when we are to be ready as a bride, dressed for your coming. Dress us, O oh God, I pray in your name. Amen.